Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! What we found there uh, was that half of the population uh, are starving. Uh, the, uh, the grim reality is also that nine out of ten people uh, uh, are not eating enough, are not eating every day, and don't know uh, where the next meal is going to come from. As the death toll in Gaza grows closer to 20,000, Human Rights Watch has accused the Israeli government of using starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza. We'll speak to Omar Shakir, the Israel and Palestine director of Human Rights Watch in Amman. Then we look at how the Biden administration's facing accusations it's been too slow to help Palestinian Americans and their families trapped in Gaza. We'll speak with a Palestinian American woman in Detroit whose mother died while waiting to leave Gaza for medical care. We'll also talk to the head of Gaza's General Union of Cultural Centers. He left Gaza a month ago, is now desperately trying to get his family out and to the United States. This comes as calls grow for the U.S. to grant temporary protected status, or TPS, to Palestinians already in the U.S. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. At least 13 Palestinians have been killed and 75 wounded in an Israeli strike on the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. Today's deadly assault came after at least 110 Palestinians were reportedly killed in and around Jabalia since Sunday. Meanwhile, in the southern city of Rafah, at least 29 people were killed, with many more trapped under the rubble after Israel's military bombed three residential buildings. With the latest attacks, the number of Palestinians killed since October 7th is rapidly approaching 20,000. On Monday, Israeli officials allowed a few dozen trucks carrying desperately needed humanitarian aid through the Kedem Shalom border crossing from Israel into Gaza. It was the first time since early October Israel allowed aid in through the crossing, adding to a trickle of aid Israel's military has allowed through Gaza's border with Egypt. Truck drivers said the aid convoy was a tiny fraction of what's needed. The aid coming through is not enough. It doesn't come in every day, and time is short. Trucks wait 17 to 18 days at the crossing. We hope that the world would allow for the aid to reach these poor people. Those living in the displaced camps are in a bad situation. They have no life. After headlines, we'll speak with the Israel-Palestine director at Human Rights Watch, which has just published a report headlined Israel, Starvation Used as Weapon of War in Gaza. Israeli strikes on Gaza have killed three more Palestinian journalists. Adel Zarob was killed as Israel bombed Rafah city overnight. He was reportedly known for his efforts to help wounded children.
His death came a few hours after Abdullah Alwan was killed in an Israeli airstrike on his home in Jabalia, northern Gaza. He was a commentator for a number of Al Jazeera Arabic programs. A third journalist, Hanin al-Kashtan, was also killed in an Israeli strike on the Nusirat refugee camp, along with her family. At least 97 Palestinian journalists and media workers have been killed by Israel since the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has reaffirmed the Biden administration's support for Israel's assault on the Gaza Strip, calling U.S.-Israeli ties unshakable. Austin made the remarks in Tel Aviv Monday, where he met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's defense minister. Yoav Gallant and other members of Israel's war cabinet. Their meeting came as Houthi fighters in Yemen launched drone attacks on two cargo vessels in the Red Sea, the latest in a series of assaults that Austin blamed on Iran. America's commitment to Israel is unwavering, and no individual, group, or state should test our resolve. Iran's support for Houthi attacks on commercial vessels must stop. Now, we'll continue to provide Israel with the equipment that you need to defend your country, Mr. Prime Minister, including critical munitions, tactical vehicles, and air defense systems. The United Nations Security Council postponed a vote Monday on a Gaza ceasefire resolution after U.S. diplomats objected to language calling for the, quote, urgent and sustainable cessation of hostilities, unquote. The U.S. delegations demanding the language be changed to a suspension of hostilities. The Security Council's plan to vote on a resolution reflecting the watered-down language today. The U.S. previously vetoed a resolution calling for a humanitarian pause on October 18th and another calling for an urgent humanitarian ceasefire fire on December 9th. In Texas, Republican Governor Greg Abbott has signed a bill into law allowing local law enforcement to arrest immigrants and asylum seekers and charge them with a state crime for crossing the U.S.-Mexico border outside ports of entry. The new crime would be punishable by up to six months in jail, while Texas judges would have the authority to drop the charges if a migrant agrees to be returned to Mexico. Governor Abbott spoke from a section of border wall in the Rio Grande Valley Monday, where he also signed two other bills further militarizing the U.S.-Mexico border. The goal of Senate Bill 4 is to stop the tidal wave of illegal entry into Texas. It creates a criminal offense for illegal entry into Texas from a foreign nation. Senate Bill 3 adds $1.54 billion more to build more border barriers and walls like what we have here. It includes also $40 million for the Texas Department of Public Safety for border security operations and increased law enforcement presence. Texas Democrats and members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus are urging the Justice Department to block Senate Bill 4. On Monday, they wrote in a letter to Attorney General Merrick Arland, quote, This bill is set to be the most extreme anti-immigrant state bill in the United States. It's clearly preempted by federal law, and when it goes into effect, will likely result in racial profiling, significant due process violations, and unlawful arrests of citizens, lawful permanent residents, and others, they wrote. On Saturday, the White House hosted an online meeting with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus after members warned President Biden against agreeing to Republican demands to further crack down on immigrants and asylum seekers as part of a military aid package for Ukraine, Taiwan and Israel. 
Egypt's authoritarian president, Abdel Fattah Sisi, has declared victory after a non-competitive election. Human Rights Watch reports this month's poll followed a campaign of arrests, intimidation and onerous requirements for candidates that effectively prevented any meaningful competition. In 2019, Egypt's constitution was amended to allow Sisi to run for a third term while lengthening presidential terms to six years. He's now set to remain in office until 2030. Sisi came to power in 2013 when he led the coup that removed Egypt's first democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi, opening a crackdown and dissent that's been described as the end of the Arab Spring. In September, the Biden administration approved $1.3 billion in military aid to Egypt, withholding just a small fraction of the aid, $85 million, even though the aid was contingent on Sisi's government releasing some of Egypt's tens of thousands of political prisoners, which it failed to do. Pope Francis has formally approved a document from the Vatican's doctrinal office that for the first time allows priests to bless same-sex couples, so long as the blessing does not resemble a wedding. Advocates hailed the move as a major step toward ending the Catholic Church's discrimination toward LGBTQ plus people, but warned the Church still holds the official position that marriage is between a man and a woman and that same-sex couples are living in sin. Marianne Duddy Burke is director of Dignity USA, which focuses on LGBTQ plus rights and the Catholic Church. Obviously, for same-sex couples, sacramental equality is what would put us on the same footing as any other Catholic seeking recognition of their relationships. We're not there yet. This is an important step, but it is yet another step on a journey that still has probably miles and miles to go. In China, at least 118 people have died after a 6.2 magnitude earthquake struck a mountainous region of the northwestern Gansu province. More than 500 people were injured as the quake collapsed buildings and severed roads and power lines. Rescue workers say freezing temperatures and rough terrain are hampering efforts to find survivors. Here in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency has launched a formal safety review of various chemicals, including vinyl chloride, one of the substances released into the air in eastern Ohio after a Norfolk Southern train derailed and triggered a massive fire earlier this year. Vinyl chloride has been linked to heightened cancer risk. It can be found in commonly used plastic products and polyvinyl chloride plastic, or PVC. Following the February crash in East Palestine, Ohio, residents reported respiratory and other health problems. The the incident brought scrutiny to so-called bomb trains that transport crude oil and other dangerous chemicals through communities across the United States. The EPA review will take at least three years. Here in New York, the judge overseeing Donald Trump's civil fraud trials rejected his request to have the case against Trump thrown out. On Monday, Judge Arthur Angoran plastid an expert witness called by the defense, noting that New York University accounting professor Eli Bartoff spent 650 hours on the case at a rate of $1,350 per hour. The judge ruled that Bartoff had lost all credibility, writing, quote, all that his testimony proves is that for a million or so dollars, some experts will say whatever you want them to say, unquote. 
In Georgia, the former election workers, African-Americans Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shay Moss, have sued Trump's former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, for a second time. On Friday, a federal jury ordered Giuliani to pay Freeman and Moss $148 million in damages after he falsely accused them of tampering with ballots during the 2020 election, leading to harassment and death threats from Trump supporters against them. Their new lawsuit seeks a court order permanently barring Giuliani from defaming them again. Meanwhile, a federal appeals court panel has rejected a bid by Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to have an election interference case against him in Georgia moved to federal court. And the famed Italian Marxist and political activist Antonio Negri has died at the age of 90. Negri inspired generations of leftist scholars and activists with his writings about the human desire for liberation and the self-organizational capacity of ordinary people to make change. Negri co-authored, along with Michael Hart, the seminal book Empire, which argued for a contemporary understanding of imperialism beyond the limits of individual nation states. Democracy Now! interviewed Antonio Negri in Venice, Italy in 2015. I concluded our conversation by asking Negri what gives him hope. The fact that the new generations, and not only them, have understood that they can fight, that they can move on the terrain of new capacities for action, I believe that these new generations born out of communicative and intellectual labor are much freer than our parents or my generation of factory workers. These are social generations, generations who communicate and build their future with language, with the word, with intelligence, and this is hope. Hope lies wholly within people and their ability to determine their own destinies. We'll be posting the whole interview later in the week. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we go to Aman Jordan to talk about the Human Rights Watch report on Israel using starvation as a weapon of war. We will also be talking to Palestinians and Palestinian-Americans who are accusing the Biden administration it's been too slow to help them and their families trapped in Gaza. Stay with us.
Homeland Security by Clarissa Bitar. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. As the humanitarian crisis in Gaza deepens, we turn now to Palestinians and Palestinian Americans who are trying to evacuate their family members to the United States. At least two Palestinian Americans have now filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration, saying its failure to help them violates their constitutional rights. This is Yasmina Laga, who says she lost at least 100 relatives in Gaza, including two American citizens. The only thing that I'm being told is that there is nothing further that the U.S. government can do, which I don't believe at all. The lawsuit notes that after the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel, the U.S. government organized charter flights from Tel Aviv for Americans to leave Israel. So far, they say, the United States has not organized any flights to secure the exit of at least 900 U.S. citizens, residents and family members still in Gaza. Al Jazeera reports more than 100 staff members of the Department of Homeland Security signed an open letter to Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas denouncing the response to humanitarian crisis in Gaza so far, saying it should be, quote, commensurate with the past responses to humanitarian tragedies and offer a humanitarian parole program to Palestinians like it did after conflicts in Afghanistan and Ukraine. More than 100 Democrats, led by Michigan Senator Dick Durbin, have called on Biden to make Palestinians who are already in the U.S. eligible for temporary protected status, or TPS. Today, we'll hear two stories. One, a Palestinian-American woman in Detroit whose mother died in Gaza. She was approved to evacuate, but was still waiting to get out. She's the daughter is desperately seeking the government's help to evacuate the rest of her family. We'll also be joined by her attorney, Sophia Akbar. But first, we go to Cairo, Egypt, with another of Sophia's clients, Fadi Abu Shamala. He's Just Vision's outreach associate in Gaza, executive director of Gaza's General Union of Cultural Centers. We spoke to him last month when he was still in Gaza about his New York Times op-ed, What More Must the Children of Gaza Suffer? Well, he was able to leave Gaza and is joining us now as he works to be reunited with his wife and his three children who are still in Gaza, Ali Karam and Adam. Fadi, welcome back to Democracy Now! In a moment, we're going to talk about the legal case here. But if you can talk about what is happening in Gaza right now, um, what's happening in Rafa, in Jabalia, talk about why you left Gaza and what you think needs to happen. Oh, thank you so much for having me um, for the second time. I wouldn't do the, I wouldn't do the same for me. But yeah, again, thank you so much for having me in this um, interview. I will start by, by telling that the, the situation on the ground, in, not in Rafah city itself, like in, in, in every city in uh, Gaza Strip is beyond our imagination. Like the, not all of the news really come out to us here. I'm, I'm, I'm talking with you from Cairo and the situation on the ground itself, it's more horrible than 
what you can see by your um, um, uh, screens and TVs. I would say also um, um, a horrific number, like the honor was say that 1.9 million of the Palestinian people are displaced, already displaced their, their homes. They, almost of them are, were pushed into the far um, south of uh, Gaza Strip in a city called, um, uh, called uh, Rafah. Um, the, in, la, in the last, <coughs> sorry, in the last 36 hours, uh, only 177 Palestinian, civilian Palestinians were, were killed. This, this war, I would call it, is the war against the civilian, the Palestinian civilian, in order only to kill. That's it. This, this is the main goal. I would say that there's two goals. The first one is to kill the civilian as much as they can, and the second goal is to destroy as much as they can. Gaza City itself is erased. You will be shocked when you, if you will send your cameras after hopefully this nightmare and this war will, will end. You will be shocked because of the numbers of the neighborhood that it's, it's completely, completely is damaged. The south, the north, sorry, the north of the Gaza Strip, no one knows about the, um, the, the north of, of Gaza Strip. Only there's two journalists, uh, according to what I knew, uh, according to what I know, that the, only there's two journalists who are trying to cover the, um, the situation, the situation um, uh, there. Like, they are killing people in, 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 in tents. That's what I hear also, like, also, sorry, that. Witnesses say that the Israeli uh, bulldozers buried the injured people in Kamal Adwan Hospital. They buried them while they are alive. They were still alive. They killed them. They buried them. This is... We should find a word that can express more than the word of genocide. That's what is going on there. Like the, the medical situation is horrible. The humanitarian situation is horrible. The... The water itself, the, the food itself, the electricity, the, the number of the killed people, the number of the pumped homes over the head of its residents. At the end, no one knows when this war is going to end. But what I know for sure, that we were all devastated, that we, our all hearts is broken for, for the destruction. Fadi, that's happened, Fadi, the plural destruction that's happening. And also, what, what is the situation with your wife and your three children? Uh, could you talk about the obstacles of them not being able to get out? Fadi, could you hear me? Fadi, uh, I'm going to put Juan's question to you. For some reason, um, you're not able to hear him. He's talking about um, um, he's talking about your family and trying to get your family out. Can I you don't describe? Hear you, sorry. I think the IFB has dropped, and we're going to tr go back to you. Um, but we're going to go right now uh, to your lawyer, um, and we'll try to fix the sound system to Cairo, um, Sophia Akbar. Uh, Sophia, can you talk about the situation that Fadi and a number of other people are in? Uh, talk about what's happening in the United States and how Palestinian Americans in the United States
states trying to get their families out and Palestinians who are trying to come into the United States from Gaza. Talk about, with your experience as a civil rights attorney who's been working with other attorneys and advocates uh, to grant TPS to Palestinians here already, and what's happening to, for example, your client, Fadi. Thank you for having me, Ms. Goodman. Um, my clients, family members, need immediate evacuation from Gaza to reunite with their families and to escape near certain death due to Israel's brutal war on Palestine. We need the U.S. government to demand an immediate ceasefire from Israel and to stop U.S. taxpayer dollars to facilitate the genocide of the Palestinian people. We need the U.S. government to create immigration pathways for Palestinians to come to the U.S., to escape deadly and inhumane conditions. We know that last week, UNICEF declared Palestine to be the deadliest place for children in the entire world. In just the last 10 weeks, Israel has killed over 10,000 Palestinian children, and that's not including the numbers that are trapped under the rubble, and has injured over 18,000 Palestinian children while they're walking to school, playing outside, receiving medical treatment in hospitals, staying quietly in their homes, or waving a white flag while crawling to them. Both of my clients have children that have been affected by uh, children in their families that have been affected uh, by this war. Uh, Fadi has three, ch had three children, and we just found out this morning that they were able to evacuate from Egypt. But this has been to a Egypt. grueling process. I'm sorry? Uh, able to evacuate to Egypt? That's correct. They were able to evacuate just this morning. And uh, but prior to this, they were in a refugee camp that was bombed. Uh, there were 20 people that died in that bombing. And Fadi was frantically looking through pictures to make sure that his family members were not included in the dead. Uh, it has been a, a, a grueling process of waiting while Fadi has been separated from his family. And hopefully they will be reuniting in the next few hours. But Fedi still has 20 family members who are in Gaza. And my other client, who we'll hear from as well, Nermeen, uh, she has 20 nephews and nieces under the age of 21 who are, uh, who are in Gaza. And some are in the northern part of Gaza where they rarely hear from them. Um, so regarding efforts to grant temporary protected status, as you mentioned, Senator, uh, Senator Durbin and Senator Jayapal uh, wrote letters to the Biden administration demanding that temporary protected status be extended to Palestinians. I am also part of a collective of attorneys and advocates across the country. And we, along with the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, wrote a letter as well to the Biden administration demanding that TPS be extended to Palestinians. And we had over 100 organizational signatories. TPS is typically granted to countries that are undergoing armed conflict or an environmental disaster. Um, in Palestine, there are no more buildings where people can work. There are no more schools for children to attend to allow parents to work and for children to have a future. Um, even if we have a ceasefire tomorrow, the amount of destruction that Israel has unleashed onto Palestinians in Gaza has made life impossible. So temporary protected status would allow Palestinians who are already here in the United States uh, extended status so that they do not have to return to a death sentence. But TPS is not enough. 
that only applies to Palestinians who are here. So what we really need is a humanitarian immigration pathway that would allow Palestinians who are in Gaza a pathway to come to the United States and find refuge here. Uh, you mentioned Sophia, that. Could, could, yes. Sophia, could you talk about the difference between how the administration has been dealing, for instance, with those fleeing the war in Ukraine versus the Palestinians? Absolutely. That is an extremely stark difference. Um, the, under the Uniting for Ukraine program, all requirements of having connections to green card, green card holders and U.S. citizens were waived. So Ukraine, about uh, over, over 270,000 Ukrainians were allowed to come to the United States under this program. And as advocates on the ground right now, uh, serving you know, uh, our clients who have families in Gaza, we cannot even get U.S. citizens out. We our our advocates had to sue the Biden administration just to get uh, U.S. citizens evacuated. And that didn't even that didn't even prioritize the issue. We had to um, uh, my colleagues had to sue, uh, you know, place two more lawsuits last week to evacuate U.S. citizens. And so that's not to say how you know, the family members of U.S. citizens and the green card holders are treated. And uh, the Uniting for Ukraine program applied to people beyond that category as well. So what we really need is a similar program like Uniting for Ukraine, where Palestinians can have an immigration uh, humanitarian pathway to to come here and, and, and seek refuge. And what are the obstacles posed by the fact that the United States does not recognize Palestine as a foreign state and when when it comes to immigration issues? That's absolutely a challenge, and it is something that we uh, that we um, had to address in our efforts to request TPS. And um, we have seen that the United States has offered temporary protected status to territories. Um, uh, so that, that is something that we included in our letter and in our request. But absolutely, it is, it is a challenge. And, um, uh, you know, ultimately, without a solution that grants Palestinians freedom, there is no immigration solution that will uh, properly address this problem. Even if we allow Palestinians to to come here, to open our borders to them, we have no way of assuring them that if, when they want to go back, that they will be allowed to return. Palestinians and Native Americans are the only groups of people in the entire world where their return to their land and their property is not governed by them. And that has to change. I want to bring Narman Abushaban into this conversation, uh, Sophia, another of your clients. Um, Narman, thanks so much for being with us. You're a Palestinian-American attempting to expedite your request to rescue your siblings and their families from Gaza. We're speaking to you in Detroit. First, our deep condolences on the loss of your mother. Can you talk about what happened to her and what your situation is? Um, hi, good morning. Um, I just want to thank you for having me here um, to share my story about my mother, even though there are like no words that can describe what uh, happened. 
My mother was, is an old lady who uh, was uh, living safely in her home. Uh, she was displaced many, displaced many times. Every time they displaced, they get displaced. Um, to mo they move to another house. They are threatened to uh, bomb that. Had the, the Israeli forces are threatening them to bomb the house. So my brothers had to displace her. She's uh, paralyzed. She's on medications. And um, due to the air forces uh, threatening them to displace many times, they were in the north, they had to go to the south. Even when they were in the south, in Khan Yunis, um, they were threatened in the middle of the night to, to leave their house. They had to displace her again until they reached to Rafah. And there, she, her health was um, getting worse and worse um, until the, uh, she didn't have the medication, the right medication. Due to the uh, Israeli forces, they prevented uh, the medical supplies to get into Gaza. So she had to switch to another medication with, that did not help her at all. And um, she passed away. Allah yirhamha. And, and Norman, uh, how, how has it been, been possible for you even to communicate with family members in Gaza uh, to... to uh, to assess their situation and, uh, and, and their state? Um, it's really hard for me to communicate with them. I had to have my phone uh, international calls to be able to call them. Nowadays, it's not uh, working. It was working before, but now it's not working at all. Um, they have to go to the hospital um, um, to get some internet connection so they can uh, talk to me. They send me, like, in specific times of the day, like in the middle of the night, I have to keep uh, my eyes open so I can see when they can text me or when they can send me a WhatsApp or, like, message to, to see if they're okay or not. Um, but my siblings that are in the north, I have no communication at all. My brother, I haven't been hearing from him for two weeks now. And um, he's in the healthcare, and the Israeli forces are targeting all the health care professions. And all I know that they surrounded the houses there and they're shooting on people. But I don't know anything about my brother and his family that are like more than 10 uh, kids and grandkids. Norman, have you speaking? Have you been speaking with your senator, um, with Dick Durbin, and what has been the response? I have been um, actually. I did send emails, but I didn't get any uh, any um, reply. I uh, filed the crisis intake. Um, I put all my siblings, my mother, um, and I've been emailing them, telling them about her situation and my siblings' situation. But I didn't get any answer. They've been saying that they're not in the category. They don't fall in the category to get them only immediate family. And they are immediate family. They, like, what do they consider immediate family? After my uh, mother's death, like two days after, I got an email that they put my mother's name on the list to be evacuated. So I had to send them again that she's dead. It's too late. Um, they told me that they're going to put my siblings' names on the Rafah crossing. They... They even send me the names that they will uh, put them and they, they send them the Rafah crossing. But still, it's been like three weeks and I haven't heard anything. And I don't want to lose my siblings as I lost my uncle, as you know. Like uh, my uncle and his, his entire family were bombed by the Israeli forces, by the airstrike. And my, uh, my uncle is an old man. He was in his home playing with his grandchildren. His, his wife was feeding his, her, her grandchild. They bombed the house on top of them. They were under the rubble for one week. They could not get there. No, nobody could get in there to help them. 
until um, uh, until the air forces, the air sol- the, the Israeli soldiers left. They wouldn't allow anybody to get in there. So I don't want to lose my brothers and my sisters. Um, I, every day I hear like bombing and um, and striking people and uh, targeting hospitals, civilians. I want to re- reunite with my siblings. I, wa- I don't want to lose them the way I lost my mother. I just want them to evacuate. If they don't stop the genocide, they don't stop it at all, so they can even can sleep. There are children, there are women, there are like all of them. They're always scared, scared. They can't sleep. So if they don't stop the genocide, this is the only thing I can do. I can like ask for your help, for the, the, the Department of State to help me evacuate my, uh, my siblings. We are speaking to Narman Abu Shaban, Palestinian-American, talking to us from Detroit. She's already lost her mother, her uncle, attempting to have her request expedited to rescue her siblings and their families from Gaza. And we are rejoined by Fadi Abu Shamala uh, from Cairo. Um, Fadi, we understand that your kids, your three kids and wife, just got through Ratha into Egypt um, just before this broadcast, as you were attempting to get them out. Can you talk about their situation and how you're trying to get into the United States at this point? You are just Visions Outreach Associate in Gaza and the executive director of uh, Gaza's General Union of Cultural Centers. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I, would, I would start answering this question by uh, saying that uh, the, the trip that, and the journey that my kids have to, to go through it, it starts from October uh, 9, when, when we decided to evacuate our homes from uh, Gaza City into my parents' home in Khan Yunis, and um, working in, in journalism um, and speaking up about for, for the Palestinian people and all the massacres and genocide that is it's, it's going on on the ground by the Israeli commission. Um, we, we reach a point that I have to evacuate, uh, I, I have to, sorry, leave Gaza Strait because there was like really risk over my family because Israel until that day, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about November 14, at, until that date, around 61 journalists have been killed. My family felt that they are in dangerous and they, and they may, might be pumped any time. That's made me have to sleep in my car for one time the night before I leave, I leave Gaza Strip. And I thought that's by, 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 Traveling to, to Cairo, I will be able to help my family to evacuate. I mean, by, my, my name only was on the list of November 2, I mean the U.S. list of November 2. So, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it didn't happen. That's what I, wa- I want to say. Then on December 5, the Israeli Commission th- did, uh, did throw leaflets asking the people of Yunis to evacuate to Shabura refugee camps, which is in Rafah city. And the next day, and before the next day, they have to evacuate. Like after seven hours, I, I figured out that they arrived safe to, uh, to Rafah City. It wasn't easy for me like to, to, to be waiting because I knew in the news that they were bumping in the streets. I mean, the same street that they are using to evacuate Rafah City. The next day on December, on December 6th, 
while I don't have connection with my wife and my kids, I get um, I knew that from the news that uh, the Israeli Commission bombed um, in the Shabura refugee camps. Exactly where is my family are evacuating? And to to get more like orientation about this refugee, it's just only 15 kilometers square. It's a very small neighborhood, and it consists of also old building. And there's a very high risk that all these buildings will be demolished because of this bombing. For two hours and a half, I was waiting inside that my family are alive. I had to go through the, 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 what's the news of WhatsApp thread to look for my kids' photo. I had to look into the photos of the killed children because I knew that there's 20 women and kids were killed in this bombing. I had to open the photos and zoom in to, to, to determine if, if one of these photos is one of my kids. It wasn't easy for me at all like to, to have this 2.5, two hours and a half waiting any sign that my family alive. It wasn't the end, but even so, the next night and the next night and the next night, they have daily bombing in Shabura and in Rafah city. This is the place that exactly Israeli commission said that it's a safe area, as exactly they said that the, the, Palestinian, the Palestinian people from Gaza city have to evacuate to Khan Yunis. They consider Khan Yunis as a safe area, and then they ask us to evacuate to Rafah. My kids have to go to all of this, they have to be in... By the way, yes, you are right. My kids are coming to me to Cairo, but the three of them, they are sick. I will move them immediately. Once I hold them, I will move them to the hospital because they are very sick. There is no clean water. They, they don't have healthy food there. It's horrible. I'm happy that my kids are coming to my hug, that I'm going to hold them. But I'm so devastating about the, the hundreds of the thousands of the kids in Gaza Strip. They, they have to go through this, all of these circumstances. And the international community are silent. And a lot of them are supporting it. Like, they, like, like as Paul Peller said that Biden is a partner uh, in making the biggest human disaster that the world is witnessing since 500 years ago. This is the situation that the kids and the women have to go through it, that they don't have food to eat, a clean water to drink. My kids have infection in their mouth, in their stomach. They are very thin. My wife had to send me photos for them after I asked her many times, send me a photo for my kids. I was shocked. They are not my kids at all. I just left them for one month and they are completely changed. I will do my best to, to get them recovered and get better health and get better food. But what about the other people in, in, in Gaza Strip, the other kids, the women who are not, who don't find milk for their kids? My wife couldn't find antibiotic for my kids. Only antibiotic. Antibiotic. I mean, this is the most simple medicine that you should, you should have in, in, in any place in the world. Even in the jungle, you would find, you would find antibiotic and painkiller. I will do my best with my, with my kids for, for, for sure.
but I'm very devastated, very sad about 2.3 millions of Palestinians who are pushed into the south of, 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 of Gaza Strip. I would say that, yeah, my kids, we made it. They are coming to Cairo, like in five, six, seven hours, whatever, I don't care. They are coming to my hug again. And um, I'm, I'm gonna, we all of us are gonna travel to the uh, US for uh, five months, starting from January until the end of May. Um, I was so lucky to get a fellowship from an American organization. But the majority of the people do not have this chance and do not have this privilege to, to, to do the same. This is injustice at all, it's insane at all. What is happening there cannot be explained, cannot be discussed. I mean, in a normal, normal conversation, we need millions of cameras. I, I'm, I always keep, to say, keep saying that every Palestinian family has its own story, and every member of every Palestinian family has his only his or her own story, because everyone has a story that is full of tears, full of fear, full of being scared, full of hunger. We are being fighted by making us starving, as the Human Rights Watch have said, I think, yesterday or early today. Yes, Israel is fighting us by food. They are preventing us to get food. The number of the trucks that's of a humanitarian aid that should be allowed to enter Gaza, it's nothing. Well, we need much doubles. We need thousands of trucks to enter Gaza 24 hours until three months until we get the balance, at least for the food only. We will need at least 10 years to reconstruct and rebuild the destroyed Gaza Strip. That is the real face of the Israeli occupation by and and Palestinian people will never forgive the world. The Nakba in 1948, it happened where there is no cameras, there is no TVs, like now. But now, the international community are silent. I do thanks, of course, and appreciate all the demonstration and the march that went to the street in, in, in solidarity with the Palestinian people. We think that it's not still enough. We need from you more pressure against the international community, against your leaders, especially the U.S. administration. They have to stop supporting Israel by providing them the military that we are being killed by it. They have to stop financially support Israel or at least asking Israel, or at least, I mean, preventing of issuing veto in the Security Council when the Palestinian people need only a humanitarian ceasefire. Fadi Abu Shamala, I want to thank you so much for being with us. In fact, our next segment, we're going to look at that Human Rights Watch report uh, with its author. Yes, the report called Israel Starvation Used as a Weapon of War in Gaza. Um, Fadi, I want to thank you for being with us. Fadi Abu Shamala, Just Visions Outreach Associate usually in Gaza, now in Cairo, executive director of Gaza's General Union of Cultural Centers, will be reuniting with his three children and wife in just a few hours, then soon coming to the United States. We want to thank civil rights attorney Sophia Akbar and Narman Abushaban, Palestinian-American, attempting to expedite her request to rescue her siblings and their families from Gaza. Her mother died there while waiting to get out, as did her uncle. 
Coming up, Human Rights Watch. Stay with us. by Ryuichi Sakamoto, the Japanese musician and activist, passed away this year. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As the death toll in Gaza nears 20,000, Human Rights Watch has accused the Israeli government of using starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza. Human Rights Watch says Israel's deliberately blocked the delivery of water, food and fuel while willfully impeding humanitarian assistance. The group said Israel's also apparently raised agricultural areas inside Gaza as many Palestinians face starvation. We're joined now by Omar Shakir, Israel and Palestine director of Human Rights Watch, which has just published a report headlined Israel, Starvation Used as a Weapon of War in Gaza. He's joining us from Amman, Jordan. Omar, why don't you lay out your findings? We found five very disturbing trends coming together that led us to this conclusion. Uh, the first of which has been for more than two months now, the Israeli government has been blocking all but a trickle of aid, food and water from entering um, the Gaza Strip. Um, secondly, the Israeli government has, in essence, cut off um, the entry and exit of goods from its own crossings with uh, Gaza, despite being the occupying power that's obligated to provide for the uh, civilian population. Third, satellite imagery that we've been carefully studying shows the apparent deliberate raising of agricultural land. You can see entire farms and other areas turned from lush green agricultural land into barren wasteland in different parts of the Gaza Strip. Fourth, um, we look at the um, destruction of the kinds of objects necessary for human survival, bakeries, um, wheat mills, sanitation and water facilities, hospitals. In northern Gaza, you cannot find many of these uh, facilities that are functioning. And fifth and finally, statements from Israeli government officials that set out in very plain terms. And this includes the defense minister, the national security minister, members of COGAT, the Israeli army, that state quite clearly that they will continue to prevent these basic supplies, food, water, aid, from entering until they accomplish the objectives they've set, such as the return of hostages and the destruction of Hamas. All this collectively amounts to starvation used as a weapon of war, which is an abhorrent war crime, adding to the Israeli government's many other war crimes, like collective punishment that, that have been taking place over the last 10 weeks. 
And Omar, specifically in terms of the deprivation of clean water to drink and fuel, you talk about the impacts of uh, this policy in terms of the spread of disease and access to food. Absolutely. Look, I mean, I think water is a basic thing that's needed for health services, for everyday life, for cleaning. And you've seen several things take place with water. The first thing is to note that 97% of the groundwater in Gaza uh, is unfit for human consumption as a result of over-extraction of the ground aquifer that, that comes in uh, from Israel. So Gaza has long relied on uh, water that's coming in from Israel. Israel cuts uh, that water supply after October 7th. It's resumed uh, piping uh, to parts of southern Gaza. But in northern Gaza, that's not the case. We've also seen significant destruction of the water infrastructure. We've also seen destruction um, to other water facilities, pipelines. And you have the lack of fuel that's led to the shutdown of desalinization water pumping facilities. So you have some water coming in on trucks, but bottled water is not enough to allow the population to drink, for hospitals to function, for sanitation to take place. And the results are quite deadly. We're already hearing, seeing reports of thousands of cases, cases of contagious diseases, and we're seeing hospitals trying to make do. And of course, the majority of hospitals in Gaza are not functioning. The Israeli government has been systematically attacked attacking um, hospitals, especially in northern Gaza. Um, but those that are operating are trying to do so without adequate supply of medical supplies and water. And the consequences are stark and they will get worse unless we see the tap switched on water and the ability for the water infrastructure to be repaired and fuel to enter so those uh, pumping stations and desalinization plants can operate. What actions uh do you see necessary by the international community uh, at this point, especially given the fact that the United States continues to veto uh, any resolutions in the Security Council? I think today's U.N. Security Council vote is quite essential. There's an opportunity to take concrete action to protect civilians. It's critical that states support that resolution and the United States not exercise its veto. Lives quite literally hang in the balance. Uh, beyond the action at the Security Council, there's absolutely a need for states to unequivoc unequivocally condemn this war crime. Uh, we've seen far too often, especially the United States and its allies in Europe, that are um, condemning um, rightfully abuses that are carried out by Palestinian armed groups, but not using the same language to condemn the clear war crimes committed by the Israeli government. Um, there needs to be a call for an immediate resumption of full aid, not the trickle that's being allowed in, but the aid alone is not enough. There needs to be a restoration of electricity, water, and other basic services. And ultimately, that's not going to matter if unlawful attacks and incessant bombardment continue to wreak havoc on the lives of people. There must be an end to an unlawful attacks. And obviously, more long-term, beyond these sort of immediate needs of the civilian population, there are a couple of essential things that are needed. One, there must be accountability for um, unlawful attacks and other violations, including at the International Criminal Court. Secondly, there must be an addressing of root causes such as Israel's apartheid against Palestinians. And finally, 
All states must evaluate all forms of potential complicity in these grave abuses. And in the case of the United States, that means imposing an arms embargo, ending um, the provision of military assistance and arms, given the high risk they'll be used in the commission of grave abuses. If you can talk, Omar Shakir, about the uh, Biden administration's, to say the least, mixed message, uh, bypassing Congress, sending tank artillery that is being used against Palestinians, um, saying that they're staunchly behind Israel, then at the same time saying they're putting out a private message that they've got to reduce the casualties, and at the same time uh, vetoing U.N. Security Council resolutions, so it's not clear what's going to happen to Today, they want the language watered down, but may not stop that resolution from going forward. We'll find out soon. Can you talk about what exactly the U.S. is doing versus France calling for a ceasefire um, versus Germany, Britain, and what it would mean if the U.S. were on the front of uh, calling for a permanent ceasefire? Look, I think the United States and Israel are isolated in the international community. There is a growing consensus, as reflected in U.N. votes and otherwise, about the enormity of the catastrophe that we're seeing taking place in Gaza and the urgent need for action to end that. There has indeed been a shift in the U.S. government rhetoric. Uh, the Biden, President Biden spoke of Israel's indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. Indiscriminate bombing is a violation of the laws of war. Um, so if this is the assessment of the Biden administration, how can it justify providing military support that risks complicity in what they themselves have acknowledged to be war crimes. The reality here is the Israeli government has a long track record of unlawful attacks. Um, U.S. weapons, as has been documented in previous rounds of hostilities by Human Rights Watch, as has been documented by Amnesty International, has itself been used in the commission of grave abuses over the years. The reality here is the United States, by continuing to provide arms and diplomatic cover to the Israeli government as it commits atrocity, risks complicity in these underlying abuses. That not only um, sends the wrong message, that not only undermines the protection of Israeli and Palestinian uh, civilians, but it undermines the very international human rights uh, and humanitarian law that the United States mobilizes and cites when it comes to places like Ukraine and elsewhere in the world, undermining the protection of civilians, the use of double standards in Israel-Palestine, harm civilians everywhere in the world. The Biden administration has the chance to t make the right choice here, to begin to match its um, some of its recent words with action. And we hope the United States will not uh, veto today's resolution. Doing so will be incredibly damaging to civilians on the ground and to the United States in its position globally. We just have 30 seconds, but uh, this issue of starvation is not only being raised by Human Rights Watch, World Food Program warned of the immediate possibility of starvation. On December 6th, um, you have um, this high risk of famine uh, right through to now. As we wrap up what this means, we just heard our previous guest talking about what's happened to his children from disease to hunger. Uh, your final comment. You have a reality where nine out of 10 households in North Gaza have gone to 
You have a reality where nine of ten households, according to the World Food Program in North Gaza, have been without food for a whole day and a whole night. Imagine families that have to spend hours or more a day just to be able to get a couple of pieces of bread to feed their family. We're seeing hundreds of bodies pile up a day in airstrikes. We risk seeing that or more in the days ahead if there isn't oh. urgent action by world leaders to end these atrocities. Omar Shakir of Human Rights Watch, we thank you so much for being with us. And we wrap by saying, Happy birthday to Renee Feltz.